Great, well, let's jump in. This is the Gospel of Luke. This is the recording from the, uh, the, the writer Luke, who is a follower of Christ. Uh, and he is recording the events of this day about 2,000 years ago. This is how he begins the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. He says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and then on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, it was Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering what had happened. So a couple of things I want you to notice right out of the gate from this story. The first is this. This is the, uh, Luke's account of this first, um, this first Easter morning. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. These are real people experiencing real pain, real loss within the context of an actual culture with specific beliefs, specific traditions. Here we see a few women whose lives have been profoundly changed by Jesus. They have awakened with the dawn as soon as the Sabbath ends, which for them was Saturday. At the first hint of the rising sun, they're off. They had hurriedly prepared the spices on Friday night before the Sabbath began. Then they waited patiently all Saturday long. And then they burst out the door first thing Sunday morning. These are real people. Second thing I want you to notice is they're living a real story. As they walk briskly in the silence of the early morning, their sandals get wet with dew and their tracks tell the story. Someone has died. Someone they love. They are living what we might call the story of death or the story of grief or the story of sadness or the story of tragic loss. And so they do what women do, what women must do when life falls apart and when people are wrecked by grief and others are hiding in fear. These women, these strong and fiercely devoted women, they stride out boldly into the new day, the first light of the week, to place to the place where the dead are laid in tombs, to the place where the body of Christ has been laid, the one they love, the one who has been killed. These are real people, and they're living a real story. And I think that's important to note, because everybody needs a story. Everybody needs a story, and so everybody embraces one. And some are more aware than others of the story they've attached themselves to. 
but it's almost like we each have this instinctive effort to make some sense out of what we're experiencing in life, to bring some order to the chaos, some reason, some structure. Some, so we embrace a story. What's your story? What is the story you're embracing as your own? What is the narrative that feels right to you, that makes sense to you? The story that validates who you are and helps to guide the decisions that you need to make. I think that's a great question to ask, and I think it's an interesting question because it's a question that hasn't been, you haven't been able to ask that question of most of our culture until just the the last few generations or so. Because until relatively recently, stories were just passed down. There there just weren't a whole lot of choices. You were a shoemaker because your dad was a shoemaker, because his dad before him was a shoemaker. And if you had a story, it was just kind of about the struggle of bringing food to the table and supporting your family. Stories were passed down from generation to generation. They mostly stayed the same. But For several decades now, for the last few generations, at least in our country, people have been actively encouraged to make up their own story, to create their own narrative. So here are some of the popular examples of what I'm talking about. There's the success story, right? The goal of the success story is up and to the right. Everything's bigger and better and more. That's what it is. It's broadly celebrated as the story of having made it. And it happens in business. It happens in sports. It happens in entertainment. It happens with being accepted into college. It takes a whole lot of forms. But the goal, of, the goal is success and all that goes along with it. Another popular story is the nation story. This is the success story applied to your people or to your country. And at its best, it looks like the Winter Olympics. And at its worst, it looks like war. This is the story of us versus them. And in this story, we wave our flags, we protect ourselves and those who are like us. And it's a story that's alive and well today. Another popular story is the sensuality story. Man, you got to look good. You got to present yourself as attractive. This is what really matters. This story sells cars, it sells clothes. You see the power of this story when young people or not so young people change their faces while they take their pictures of themselves, right? Most pop music is all about this story. It's hard to find a movie that doesn't include this story as a major part of the storyline. Sensuality story. Another popular story is the humanist story. According to the humanist story, All the world's problems can be fixed through education and societal evolution. We just, we have it within ourselves. We just need to realize our full potential. This is the story that drove the enlightenment. This is what fueled the industrial revolution. This is the story of the modern age. Many of you were educated into this story. There's also the, there isn't a story story, right? This is the story that was embraced by those who realized the emptiness of the humanist story, but have nothing else to replace it with. This is the story of postmodernism. There is no truth. Do whatever you want. Eat, drink. Tomorrow we die. Forget it all, right? There's the fragmented story. I find this story is popular on, uh, in small West Coast beach towns, right? You go to the bulletin boards, just try everything. Sample whatever. Commit to nothing. It's the fragmented story, a little bit of everything. And there's the damaged story, you've been hurt. 
You're a victim. Can't be expected to take any responsibility. Life's broken. It's falling apart. And your damage defines your identity. It's the damage story. Now, it's not that all these stories are totally devoid of truth. They're not. I'm not saying they're entirely false stories. They're probably not. You may feel like one or more of these stories, it just simply is the story that life has kind of carried you into. You find yourself, boy, you resonate with a couple of those stories, right? You just sort of feel at home with them. Nor am I saying that there's not some good in these stories. There's probably elements of good in most of these stories, probably part of why they're so popular. Probably some good in these stories. What I do want to say this morning, friends, is this, that each one of these stories is ultimately disappointing. Each eventually runs out of gas. At some point, maybe you're 19, maybe when you're 91, at some point in life, you're going to realize that each one of these stories is finally meaningless. It cannot carry the human heart all the way home. It does not have what it takes. It is simply not meaningful enough. There is a hollowness in the core of each one of these stories. Each of these stories is impotent, finally, and they will fail you because they're not the true story. What I'm trying to say is that because of what happened on this day about 2,000 years ago, because of Easter, there is another story, and it is the story of the resurrection. And it is the greatest story because it is the truest story. And it is the only story that is strong enough to carry you all the way home. All other stories are going to leave you wanting. There will come a day when all other stories reach a dead end. And if you've given your life to one of these stories, the tragic reality at some point is that at some point in your life, you're going to turn the corner to discover there's a dead end. This is as far as that story goes, and you've reached the end of it. You know, like those little, those little labyrinths, those little mazes that are on the coloring pages that they hand a kid at a restaurant with like three cheap crayons to fill out while they wait for the food? My son and I went to a restaurant a couple weeks ago, and they gave him one of those, and he's filling out the little maze with his little crayon, and I could watch his face when he realized, ah, I'm stuck. And then he'd backtrack and then go the other way. And I'd watch his little face. I could see it before he said it. Mm. Dead end. Right. And if in that moment you're still soft-hearted enough, if you're still teachable enough, you may have the chance to turn around. And if the pain is severe enough, and if the disappointment is disrupting enough, you may even hear the voice of God saying something to you like the angel said to the women on this morning 2,000 years ago, why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, this story you've embraced, this narrative you've adopted as your own, it does not end in the life you're actually looking for, in the satisfaction you're actually longing for. It ends in death. It ends in disappointment. Because, quite simply, it cannot deliver what it promises. It is lying to you. You need another story. You need a truer story. And my hope is that when we come to the dead end, when we follow our story to the end and we find out, man, there's nothing there. It's just an empty tomb. My hope is that we won't stay there out of some stubborn state of defiance and pride. My hope is that we'll do what the women did. We'll turn around. We'll go back. And we'll consider another story. 
And we'll be honest enough to say, man, I'm not exactly sure what this means. I can't answer all the, all the questions. I haven't got it totally figured out at this point. But clearly, we went the wrong way. Clearly, our expectations were off. Our assumptions were incorrect. We were looking for the living, but we went to where there's only dead people, right? There's a problem here. This, friends, this is the discovery of Easter morning. This is the beautiful, unexpected dynamic of today. We get to see this story unfold several times in this one chapter from Luke's gospel, Luke 24. Let's just keep reading. It only gets better. This is starting with chapter 24, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. We like that word. (laughs) About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things together, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So here's another example. A couple of real guys living a real story. And the story they're living, we might call the story of severe disappointment. Anybody lived that story before? The story of unrealized hopes. These are other followers of Jesus who saw him as the fulfillment of the success story. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the nation story. Their hope was that Jesus would redeem Israel. Interestingly, that's exactly what he did. He just didn't do it the way they expected him to do it. They had seen Jesus as the main character in their own story of political revolution. And according to that story, the leader triumphs in the end and all his friends benefit. But they just watched Jesus die on a cross and their story reached the dead end. But instead of returning to their community with wonder and with questions like the women did, they're just quitting. They're just blowing the whole thing off, and they're leaving. They're done. But Jesus is not done with them. And so he walks up to them on the road. He speeds up to catch them, and then he slows his pace to join with theirs. And then he asks them what they're talking about, and then he begins to explain to them the true story, which is the story of the resurrection. This is what he says in verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, he went through the Bible, the Old Testament, which for them was their Bible, and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the perspective that Jesus brings at this point is so captivating. There's something about this story that Jesus is is telling. They have to hear more, but it's late. Jesus looks like he's got other plans. He's continuing on, but they beg him, stay with us for dinner, which he does. And here's how Luke writes it. When he was at the table with them, Jesus took bread, 
gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us and walked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So now they're old stories, friends. They've been replaced by a new story, and it's the truest story. It's the story of the resurrection. What had once been the dead end to their story, unrealized hopes, disappointment, even death itself, those dead ends were like brick walls to them. They couldn't go, so they went the other way. They left, but now those have been blown away. They aren't obstacles anymore because they have been completely undone by a superior story, and it's the story of the resurrection. Not even death, listen to me, not even death is an obstacle to the story of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. The effects of the story are immediate. They got up, and they returned at once to Jerusalem. They get up after dinner, they go back the seven miles in the dark. They find the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. What's true? What the women told them that morning, essentially. What's true? The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. And then the two Emmaus travelers told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So in the morning, the women go to the tomb and they believe Jesus is dead. They have a story, but their story's not true. And then in the evening, the Emmaus travelers are on the way to, to Emmaus and they're leaving because theirs is a story of severe disappointment and unrealized hopes. They have a story. And it's a, it's a valid story in the sense that it's what they've experienced, but it, it is also not a true story, finally. They've even got some of the facts straight but they're blind to the greater truth until Jesus reveals it to them. And then, and we only see a brief reference to this, but apparently somehow on this same day, Peter also encounters the risen Christ. And Peter's story is the story of personal failure. It's the story of paralyzing guilt. Does anybody know that story? But that story has also been overturned today and replaced by a truer story, and it's the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, what's your story? What's your story? Everybody needs a story. And my invitation to you this morning is simply this. Would you embrace the story of the resurrection as your story today? Would you consider embracing the story of the resurrection as your story today? Just say a couple more thoughts about what this means. The story of the resurrection, you got to understand this if you're going to embrace it. The story of the resurrection is the story of life. It is not a static, stagnant story. It is not simply a theological position, kind of some intellectual ascent. It is a living, a living, breathing, dynamic story. In other words, the Christian story is not Jesus died for your sins. Okay, now that's part of it, but that's Friday's story, right? And, and that's not the full story, despite how much of the church seems to have emphasized that part of the story. The ultimate story of Christianity is not Jesus died. The ultimate story is Jesus is alive. This is what catapults the church into action to change the whole world. 
right? They're, they're stuck in grief at Friday, but on Sunday, they're changing everything because Jesus is alive. This is the proclamation of the earliest followers of Jesus. This is the message in all of the sermons in Acts, the book of the early church. This is the story that has so much power to change the world and to change a life because Jesus is alive because of the resurrection and only because of the resurrection, we can have hope. We can have life, even in the face of just insane obstacles. Friends, you gotta understand, this is a story of life. Secondly, this is a whole different story. This is a whole different story. Do you see that the resurrection is not just a final chapter to the stories these people were already living? Do you see that it's not just, and then they retired and moved to Arizona? Right? Do you see that? It's not just a happy ending tacked on to the end of the success story. It's not that. It's not just a happy ending tacked on to the fragmented story or the damaged story. You have to understand that. It's not just a happy ending. It is a whole different story. Right? Much of what I see happening in our culture today, and I think it's why we're so weak spiritually, is because people are living their own stories and they're trying to just tack on Jesus at the end like a happy ending. They're just living their own story. I'm just going to live the story of success. I'll put a little Jesus on top, like my favorite condiment, and then I'll call it good. I'll just live the nation story, and I'll just put a little Jesus on top, make it feel a little more spiritual or morally acceptable. I'll just live the sensuality story and I'll just put Jesus on top and call it blessed. No, this is a whole different story. They're trying to pursue the success story. They're trying to pursue the nation story. They're trying to pursue the sensuality, whatever story. Can't just add Jesus on top. We're talking about an entirely different story. It's the story of the resurrection. How does that go? It goes like this. I was dead. And he gave me new life. That's how the story goes. I was lost. He rescued me from my sin. It all seemed pointless. And then I surrendered it all to Jesus, and now he's filling all of it with meaning. Not just adding a final verse to my old life. I'm singing a whole different song now, and it's the story of the resurrection. Right? And then finally, you got to know this. This story is critical. Why is it critical? Because it is the only story that offers hope that cannot be taken away. We need hope. We just simply don't make it without hope. It's just over without hope. We need a hope that this story gives. And we need a hope that endures. Let me wrap up by telling you a little story about this guy named Viktor Frankl. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a Jewish Holocaust survivor who went on to a career in psychology following his experience in a Nazi concentration camp. So young people, this is World War II, right? He's in three different concentration camps over a three-year period. Once he gets out, he writes a little book. It takes him nine days to write it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote it in 1945. It's now sold millions of copies. It's been translated into 20 different languages. And in it, he records two things. One, the horror that he and those with him experienced in the different camps through that three-year period. And secondly, he tells the theory, his own theory, of how it is the people survived. Frankel argues that essentially what happens to a person in a Nazi war camp is that they are stripped of everything. Everything of value is taken away from them. Their homes, they lose them. Their possessions are gone. 
Their vocation is forgotten. Their freedom is taken. Those they love are taken. Their health is taken. Their clothes are taken. Their food is taken. Their dignity is taken. And then he says, and this is the part that has just struck me, he says, this is the same thing that happens to all people. It's going to happen to you. And it's going to happen to me over the course of our lifetime. Eventually, everything gets taken away, your career, your loved ones, your health. The difference, he says, is in a Nazi war camp, a person would experience a lifetime of loss in one year. And so that question, he addresses it. The question that he addresses in his book then is, how do you survive that? And the answer he comes to, and this is super summary, you should read the book. The answer he comes to is that those who survived, and he doesn't mean physically, but those who survived with their sanity somewhat intact, with the ability to carry on, were not the strongest, they were not the youngest, they were not the educated, they were not those with a lot of family. Those who survived were those who had what he called a simple hope. And a simple hope was defined as something that they could hold on to that could not be taken away. So he tells the story of a man who believed that the war would end on this specific day. He was sure of it. It's going to end on this day, and it's all going to go back to normal. That day comes, the war doesn't end. He gets a fever, and he's dead within a week. Tells another story of, of a man, or several, that, that get through the pain by telling themselves, well, when the war ends, we're going to see our family again. And tragically, time after time, they would return home to find that it's gone, and the family is also gone. The hope that after the pain is done, things can go back to the way they were, it's not a simple hope because that's, it can be taken away. Even home can be taken away. Even family can be taken away. But those who survived, not just the camp, but post-war Europe in the devastation and the loss were those like the man who loved to bake bread. And what he held on to during his time of, of captivity was the simple hope that one day I'll bake bread again. It was a simple hope. Why? Because nobody, can nobody could take that away. Another survived with the simple hope of playing an instrument again. Now, Frankel died in the 1990s. As far as I know, he wasn't a Christian. But his work, I believe, communicates with such severe clarity the ultimate emptiness of so many of the stories in which we attempt to place our hope. And what Frankel says is really just an echo of the proclamation of the early Christians, people like Peter, who writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In order and an, into an inheritance that can never perish, it can never spoil, it can never fade. Essentially, I see Frankel uncovering the power of what he calls a simple hope. Peter, 2,000 years earlier, he saw it really clearly. He experienced it firsthand. He calls it a living hope. He's like, guys, this is alive. Nothing can overcome this hope because it is living. No one can take it away. Nothing can defeat it. 
It doesn't wear out. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't fade over time. What is it? It's the story of the resurrection. And that story, friends, it changes everything. And it can be our story. It can be your story. And I want to invite you this morning to embrace this story as your story. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're like, wow, how did I drift all the way out here? I need to get back. This is my story. And I want to embrace this and root my sense of identity and purpose and the, the rest of my life who experiencing the core of the gospel. Jesus is alive. And this is my story. It's the story of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for the dead ends, Lord, because they've woken us up. They are the last-ditch communication effort in a world that is just wooing us into deception, that these stories we're living, they don't deliver. They don't fulfill the longings of the human heart. And I thank you that you love us. You so love us that you have given us Christ, your son, to draw us, to communicate to us the truth and to draw us to yourself. And you've even held off judgment of the world because of patience and because of a longing that all would come to know you and the power of your resurrection. And so I pray, God, that, that we here this morning would be given the grace to be honest enough with ourselves to admit the story, the path we're walking right now, and, and to recognize what you're offering to us. And I just pray for a a genuine, simple decision. God, I'm sorry that I have been chasing this other story, and I pray for forgiveness for that, and I ask that you would draw me into your story, and I pray that you would fill my life with your power and your presence so that I could be enabled to follow you Help me to discover what it means to be a follower of Christ, to live the story of resurrection. And now would you triumph over the pain and the suffering and even the death that surrounds us? Would you give us the grace we need to see the unseen? God, have mercy on us this morning and fill us with your life and love, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen.